Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 2? If you're new with us, welcome. Good to see you. And just to let you know, we uh, are studying the book of Galatians here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, going through the book topically based on its main theme. The main theme of Galatians is liberty, the liberty that is ours in Christ. And as we have said, the book divides itself into three main areas of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle, liberty from lies, liberty from law, and then liberty for life, or in other words, liberty for living. Now, in our study, we have entered into the second major section, liberty from law, which, guys, is really liberty from religion and legalism as a way of being made right in God's eyes. So under that heading, liberty from law, we've already looked at the testimony of Paul, and that covered uh, chapter 1, verse 11, to chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, then we got into the transgression of Peter, and that uh, runs from chapter 2, verse 11, through verse 21. Uh, let me just read verses 11 to 18 to you, and let me read it to you out of the NLT, give you a little different flavor of what Paul is saying. We studied these verses last week, but I want to kind of just get a running start at this morning's study. So uh, verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from those people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you not trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law, would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. Now, those last few verses are a little difficult to understand. We kind of broke them down last week, uh, point by point, to get the idea of what Paul was communicating. So if you weren't here, I'll let you go online and listen to that uh, study again, because we really did get into this and wanted to make sure that we understood what Paul was saying, so we kind of dissected it and uh, just took it first uh, word by word and, uh, and uh, laid that groundwork. Uh, we did get down through verse 19 last week, but I want to spend a little time reviewing verse 19 uh, before we look at verses 20 and 21 because they all kind of go together. Those three verses go together and form Paul's introductory comments 
uh, leading into chapter 3. So verse 19, For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. Notice that Paul didn't say the law died. He said, I through the law died to the law. Uh, this is something that Paul elaborates on in Romans 7, where he talks about the time in his life when he believed that keeping the law would bring him life. And because he had kept himself from all the outward violations of the law, he didn't murder or steal or blaspheme, he believed the law was bringing him life, of course, eternal life in heaven. That is until he stopped to reflect upon the final commandment of the, of the Decalogue, thou shalt not covet. You see, all the other commandments dealt with outward actions, which Paul believed in his heart he had kept. But that tenth commandment, that's the one that got him. You see, that tenth commandment dealt with inward attitudes or sins of the heart, which would include lust, hatred, envy, jealousy, etc. It was then that Paul realized he had broken the law of God many times in his heart, which meant the law wasn't saving him. The law was condemning him, which is why he said in Romans 7, verse 10, So I discovered that the law's commandments, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. In other words, here's what he's saying, and I'll paraphrase. The law killed me. I thought it was saving me. But the law killed me. And by that he means condemned me to eternal death in hell. That's what hell is. It's called in Revelation the second death. All right, Physical death, death is the first death. Being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity is the second death. All right? And that's what Paul's picking up on. He said, I thought the law was giving me life. It was actually killing me. In fact, it did kill me. It condemned me to eternal death in hell. It was then that I died to the law as a way of making me righteous and earning me a place in heaven. And as such... I found a new and better way to live for God. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't the law, it was grace. And he realized that eternal life is only in Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father, nobody gets to heaven except through me. And that's why Paul says here in verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. And again, again, guys, the main thought that Paul is communicating is he died to the law as a way of being made righteous in God's eyes, which allowed him, and listen now, this is important, he died to the law which allowed him to be married to Jesus for righteousness. He doesn't say any more about it really here, but turn to Romans 7. He really elaborates on what he's talking about in Romans 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 out of the NLT. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you are familiar with the law. Don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with him. In other words, you are married to the one who was raised from the dead. And as a result, we can now produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Guys, Paul's point is, 
just as you can't be married to two people at the same time, polygamy under the new covenant is a sin. It's forbidden. Just as you can't be married to two people at the same time, you can't be married to two systems of righteousness, law and grace. It's either one or the other when it comes to being made righteous in God's eyes. You can't be married, married to both of them at the same time. You can't be saved by grace and then sanctified by the law or by works. And as we've been studying, this was exactly what the Judaizers were teaching. See, the Judaizers, if you haven't been here for our series, the Judaizers were probably, uh, they were Jewish, but they were probably Pharisees who had professed faith in Christ, but had never broken away from the law. In fact, they merged the two. They said, look, if you want you Gentiles, Gentiles if you want to be saved, you got to first become a Jew. Get circumcised, keep the law of Moses. Then you can exercise faith in Christ and be saved. Well, Paul obviously was vehemently against that whole concept and that teaching. So they went to battle over it, and the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was the result. We've studied that already. But this is what they were going around teaching people, the Judaizers, telling people that uh, the way to be made righteous was by a mixture of law and grace. This is what Paul's talking about. And that's why Paul goes on to say, to start chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in or by the flesh? Now, we will look at these very important verses next time. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I'm going to focus on two verses, Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21, which are equally as important, if not more important, than what Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3. In fact, they're so important, I believe, what is contained in these two verses are some of the most important that Paul has ever said in all of his writings. Basic, but super important, okay? So let's pick up to verse 19, and we'll read verses 19 and 20 is what I want to focus on. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, Paul makes it a point to say, look, the law is not dead when a person accepts Christ as their Savior. The law doesn't die. We'll talk about, well, what happens to the law? It's still very much in power, in, in, in effectiveness for what God designed it to be. He gets really into this in chapter 3, so we'll put that on the side for right now. But the law is not dead when a person receives Christ because now, guys, they are what's called in Christ. They're in Christ. Uh, that's the theme of the book of Ephesians, by the way, in Christ. Uh, that's what it means to be saved. Uh, we are in Christ. And those that are in Christ are now dead to the law. In other words, the law has no more power over them like the woman he uses to illustrate in Romans 7, especially verses 2 and 3. Look, the law only has power over those who are alive, living. I mean, if a guy robs a bank, and while he's making his getaway, he has a heart attack and dies, 
They don't drag his corpse into court to stand trial. <laughs> and this is basically the mentality that Paul is drawing. Simple, but very basic, right? When a person dies, the law has no more power over him or her. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When was Paul crucified with Christ? When did he die? Well, when he received Jesus by faith as his Savior. Of course, he didn't die physically. He died to the law. You don't have to turn to it, but in Romans chapter 6, Paul taught that when a person received Jesus as their Savior, they are united with Christ. It's, it's a spiritual mystery that we don't really understand fully. Uh, we will someday. But the Bible says when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were placed in Christ. God doesn't really see us anymore. He sees Jesus. All right, And everything that Jesus uh, endured, his death, burial, resurrection, we are now a part of. This is what Paul is drawing from where he elaborates in Romans 6. But we now, because we're united with Christ, we're in Christ, we're saved. We have now shared in his death and burial and resurrection because that's what it means to be in Christ. We share in all that is Jesus now. And that's why Paul could say here, I've been crucified with Christ. The Greek is literally, I have been and am now still crucified with Christ. This brought death to the law, which means it brought death, listen, to self-effort or religion. That's his point. That's where he's going here. You can't marry two systems as a way to get right with God. You got to pick one or the other. Of course, law will never get you to heaven. But if you're going to be consistent in what you believe and all, these are two separate systems that are supposedly bring people eternal life. Well, that's what the Jews thought about the law. Of course, Paul recognized at one point, no, that was I was deceived. I was, I was wrong about this. But he's saying, look, if you're a Jew still, because the Judaizers are going around having blended law and grace, look, let's be honest. Let's, let's be uh, consistent. You have two systems. You can't be married to both. Even in the law, it says a woman can't marry two men. So you got to pick one or the other. It's either we're saved by law, works, or we're saved by grace, the blood of Christ. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying, look, when I received Christ, I died to the law, which meant I died to religion. And I, I entered into a whole new way to live, which is why Paul goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You know, we read these things over and over again, and it just we just fly by these things. You have, and he goes on to elaborate, thank goodness. The Christian life is summed up in these words. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, through me. Jesus lives in Christians through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. He talked about this in the upper room the night before he went to the cross, John 14. He talked about, look, I'm, I'm going away, but where I'm going, you cannot follow me, not now. I'll come back for you, so that where I am, you will always be with me. But I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. And he goes on to say, to end that thought, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will abide with you forever. I will come to you. I will dwell in you through the Holy Spirit. Guys, let me say this, and I'll say it several times. The, I'll just warn you. It's that important. 
the Christian life is a supernatural life. Paul said, I have, and I'll paraphrase, I have been permanently, once and for all, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Guys, Christianity isn't rehabilitation or reformation of the old life. It isn't about pouring new wine into an old wineskin. It isn't turning over a new leaf and trying to reinvent yourself. Listen to me now. The Christian life is death and resurrection. It's a miracle. It's something no law or religion or personal rehabilitation program can ever accomplish. It is a miracle. We sometimes lose sight of that. It's a miracle when it comes to being saved. That's true. But it's also a miracle when it comes to living the Christian life on a daily basis. Look, there's a principle in Scripture that we need to be reminded of because it comes into play right here. Very basic, and you can write this across your entire Christian life. The battle belongs to the Lord. We forget that. We want to be like Joshua on the eve before the battle of Jericho when the Lord came to him, didn't recognize it was the Lord. Are you for us or against us? No, no. No, it is the commander of the Lord's army. I have now come. Take off your sandals, Joshua. You're on holy ground. The Lord Jesus Christ. But I, 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 re I relate to Joshua. Lord, are you for me or are you against me? Come on now, Lord. I'm, I'm fighting this battle. I, I, this, this person is just really ripping me apart. You know, gossiping against me, Lord. I'm going for him. Are you with me on this? Get behind me, Lord. No, no. I'm not going to be a foot soldier in your war. I'm going to, you're going to be a foot soldier in my war. That's why the Lord said, no, the question is irrelevant. I'm always for you, right? Paul said it in Romans 8. If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? The real question is, Joshua and all of us, are you for me or against me? That's the question. The battle belongs to the Lord. And guys, this is a principle that we all must remember when it comes to victory over whatever difficulty or problem we are facing. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is the one who fights the battles. He alone can give us victory. So we need to rely on his strength, the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, he doesn't want you to promise to try harder. I know we mean well. We've just entered a new year. You know, it's a New Year's resolutions. God doesn't want you to make another lame New Year's resolution. I've been there. I think they're probably all done by now. What is it? What's the date here? Yeah. We're three weeks in. We're all done. If you have made a New Year's resolution, it's over. You've already blown it. I know it. I stopped making them years ago because I always blew them. But God doesn't want you to try harder. He wants you to abide longer. Abide in Christ that he might live his life through you. The battle belongs to him. I mean, how much better to step out of the way and let Jesus fight your battles against the flesh and enemies and so on rather than you try to do it yourself? I mean, this year, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of folks that want to stop drinking or smoking or looking at things on the Internet they shouldn't be looking at or whatever it might be. They want to improve their life. Many are Christians who want to walk more closely with God. Wonderful, great motive for the new year. But you'll never defeat the flesh by using the flesh. Think about that. I'm going to try hard. New Year's resolution. I'm going to try harder, Lord. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Me. I'm focusing on me. You cannot use the flesh to defeat the flesh. 
It's a self-defeating proposition. I'll try harder. God just says, okay, go ahead. We've been down this road how many times? Well, go ahead. You still think you can have victory in your own strength? Go ahead and try. And when you're all tired and exhausted and frustrated and broken and you fall on your face wanting to give up, remember me. I'm standing ready to help. In fact, I'm standing ready to have you get out of the way so I can live my life through you, right? What the Lord wants for us this year is not to try harder. He wants us to get serious about our walk with him, surrender our life completely to the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you're going to know true and lasting victory in your life this year or any year. And again, that's why the Bible says that the Christian life is a supernatural life with supernatural power available to live it. But listen, only as we live in faith. Only as we live in faith. Look at Galatians 2.20 again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. Guys, the power resides in God. The power resides in God. We are connected to Him through faith. And that's what allows the power to flow from God into my life. Faith. It's faith that releases the power of God into our lives for us to be saved. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. But it's also, it's also faith that releases the power of God in our lives to live for him each and every day. There is a verse that appears first in the Bible in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The just shall live by faith. Such an important thought, it's repeated three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans 1.17, then Galatians 3.11, and then Hebrews 10.38. That's how important that concept is. Yes, people get saved by faith, but now they go on to live by faith. That's where we blow it. We all, all Christians know they're saved by faith, by God's grace through faith. We know that. Where we stumble is and where the devil gets us, because listen, if the devil can't keep you away from Jesus your entire life and get you to go to hell, if you accept Christ, he's lost, he knows that. The next thing you want to do is neutralize your effectiveness for the Lord. How does he do that? By putting you back under the law. See, we think, well, I know I'm saved by grace through faith, but i got to really try now. I love God, and I really want to try, and I want to please his heart. And we fall right into the trap of thinking that we're saved by grace, but we're sanctified by law, by works. This is something that Paul wrestled with. Turn to Romans 7. And let's look at this by looking at Paul's testimony as recorded in Romans 7. Now, in Romans 7, Paul talks about the classic battle every believer in Christ faces with their fallen nature when wanting to do God's will. And let me read it to you out of the NLT. I don't know why I'm on an NLT kick today. I just thought sometimes the NLT makes it sound very simple. Now, when we actually study a verse, we always go with the New King James. Because uh, that's more of a wooden translation. I mean, the NLT is a paraphrase. And uh, I quote it in church a lot. But if I'm going to actually pick a verse apart and study it, you know, I, I stick with a, a more of a wooden translation. But again, Romans 7, Paul talks about the classic battle every believer in Christ faces with their fallen nature when wanting to do the will of God, right? We're all, we're all there. So Romans 7, verse 19. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. Verse 22. 
I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. In Romans 6, 7, and 8, when Paul talks about sin, he's talking about the sin nature, not sins individually, uh, plural. He's talking about the sin nature, the root of all sin in our lives, okay? He said, this is war going on. He talked about it in Galatians 5. We'll talk about that. The spirit is lusting against the flesh, warring against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, so that we don't always do the things we want to do. We'll focus on that when we get there. But as you read chapter 7 of Romans... It's a chapter of defeat, and it ends with a cry of defeat, O wretched man that I am. And yet when you turn the page, so to speak, and you come to Romans chapter 8, we find a chapter of victory that ends with a shout of victory, we are more than conquerors. Uh, You read Romans 7 and 8, and you you have to say to yourself, what happened? What, What did I miss here? How did Paul go from miserable failure to glorious conqueror so quickly? Let me tell you what I think. In Romans chapter 7, Paul uses the personal pronoun I and me 46 times. In other words, the focus of chapter 7 is self. It was Paul's testimony of when he tried to defeat sin in his life through his own strength, raw determination, and hard work. And so what we have in Romans 7 is Paul addressing the utter failure of trying to use religion, the law, as a way of conquering over his fallen sinful nature. And that's why it's a chapter of defeat ending with a cry of defeat, O wretched man that I am. But in chapter 8, a tremendously uplifting and victorious chapter, the key word is spirit, as in Holy Spirit. The word spirit is used 23 times in Romans chapter 8 more than any other chapter in the Bible. And that's why it's a chapter of victory that ends with a cry of victory. We are more than conquerors. Yes, we are more than conquerors through our relationship with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. When it comes to living the Christian life, we need God's power. Or else, once again, defeat and frustration will beat the life out of us and cause us to want to give up. Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. God has given us his divine power. God never commands you to be or do for him what you can't be or do in your own strength. So with the command always comes the power. The lame man, John 5, he was lame. He couldn't walk. Jesus walks up and says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. He didn't have the power to walk, but with the command, Jesus always provides the power if we will will to do his will. The man had the will to stand up. He didn't have the ability, but he had the will, the desire. And with God's power, working with this man's will, faith, he was able to stand through the power of God. When the Bible tells us to walk as Christians in a certain way for God's glory, God never was under any illusion that we were going to be able to do that in our own strength. Just like that lame guy. When God saved us and said, now walk in Christ, he was always providing the power. 
The problem is we don't always walk in Christ the way we should because we're not looking to him. We're looking to ourselves. It's a supernatural life. But listen to what Peter said. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who is called by glory and virtue. God has given us everything we need by his divine power, given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. The word power, first of all, is the Greek word dunamis, the same word we get the English words dynamite and dynamic from. It's the same word, Greek word, used by Paul in Romans 1.16. And then we read uh, in Acts 1.8 what Jesus said. I'll read, first of all, Romans 1.16. For Paul said, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saying, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will, to his disciples... You will receive power, dunamis, dynamic power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses for me, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. Guys, the same power that saved us, yes, is the same power that equips us for service, but is also the divine power we need to live for Jesus, to live every day our Christian lives as we live in these physical bodies on this earth. In other words, it is this power that gives us total victory over, listen, our fallen sinful nature and makes us all that God wants us to be. What does he want us to be? Romans 8.37, more than conquerors. And so with regard to the Judaizers, or listen, any other person or group who tries to marry Christians to two systems of righteousness, grace and law, Paul simply went on to say in Galatians 3, how foolish can you be? How foolish can you be after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect? The Greek is mature, sanctified, by your own human effort. Law works. The bottom line is that, to say it one more time, the Christian life is a supernatural life. It's not a glorified self-help program. I am grieved how the church was psychologized years ago. And it moved away from biblical truth to the wisdom of man. And so many churches were turned into glorified self-help programs where pastors taught people how to think more highly of themselves, to put their faith in their own strength to be all that God wants them to be. And God is saying, if you just read my word, my word has never, ever have I ever said, that the church is all about helping you to be the best person you can be in your own strength. It's all about how that, when you accepted my son, you were killed to self-effort, self-reliance. You died to the law. And now, you need to live unto me. And I've provided the strength to do that. But you've got to approach it by faith every day. God, I, I can't live this life today. I can't. I've tried. I'm not able I fail miserably. I can't stop looking at junk on, on the internet. I can't stop smoking or drinking or overeating or whatever it is. I told you about my Uncle Art. He came to the church for many years before he went to be with Jesus. My Uncle Art, Art grew up, and I loved him. He was a great guy. 
Many of you knew him. He was an awesome guy. But he was a raging alcoholic for years. Raging alcoholic. And he got saved, and he tried to quit. He tried to quit. And he just couldn't break free. And one day he said, he told me this story. I fell on the ground, and I said, God, I can't do it. If you don't give me victory, this is going to kill me. I can't be, be free of it. And he said, I stood up from that prayer, and I've never touched another drop since then. And I believe God completely at that moment, because I've heard stories about the 60s, these kids on heroin. They accepted Jesus, and the Lord brought them down off their high and cleansed their bodies of the effects of the heroin. They never had a withdrawal. They never had any negative consequence. My uncle never had the DTs. He never went into withdrawal. He walked out of that room a free man through the power of God. The church is not a glorified self-help program. That you might be the best you you can be. I want you to be the best you you can be, but I want it to be God's best you for his glory. Ephesians 3.20 Now all glory to God, who is able, who he is able, through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. God's might, the idea of God's mighty power at work within us is a reference to Jesus Christ who lives within us through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Again, John 14. Back at Galatians 3.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this physical body, I live by faith, listen, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Guys, the power to live the Christian life doesn't come from a principle or a program. It comes from a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. He won the victory on Calvary's cross. He vanquished principalities and powers, Satan and his demons. And since as Christians we are now in him, all the victory and power to live that we need to live the Christian life comes through him who lives inside of us. We just need to look to Jesus by faith. Look to Jesus by faith. For him to live his life through us. As Paul said, the life which I now live in the flesh, my physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is faith that releases the power of God into our lives to be saved, but also the power of God into our lives to live for him. It's not hard work or self-effort as we rely on our own strength, the strength of our flesh and not on God's spirit to have victory. It's all about Jesus. And, and, and that's where it starts, obviously. It starts with us receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior, which causes us to be born of the Holy Spirit and brings us into a deep, abiding relationship with Him. Understand that the knowledge Peter is referring to in 2 Peter 1.3, where he said, As His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, Understand that to have the strength to live the Christian life each day only comes through the knowledge of Jesus. But further understand that this isn't a superficial knowledge. It's a deeply intimate and experiential kind of knowledge. The kind of knowledge that the Bible talks about when a man and woman marry and know one another. That deeply intimate physical relationship. 
There's a lot of people who attend church, maybe even grown up in church, all across our country, all across the world, but let's keep it to America. And they've grown up in church, and they have a superficial head knowledge of Jesus Christ. They know the historical and doctrinal facts about his life, death, and resurrection, but they have no firsthand experiential knowledge of him because they aren't connected to him through the Holy Spirit. In other words, they're not saved. They have head knowledge, and many of them think because they have head knowledge that they're saved, but just because you know some facts about Jesus. Look, as a Roman Catholic, I believed everything about Jesus back then before I was saved that I do right now, now that I am saved. Everything I believe right now about Jesus Christ, I believe then as a Catholic. So why wasn't I saved? Because it was head knowledge, and I had not invited him to live in my heart by faith. Guys, when Peter speaks of the knowledge of Jesus that brings the power of God into our lives to live for him, he uses the Greek word epigenosis. Epigenosis. Epigenosis is a word that speaks of a knowledge that is deep, genuine, and experiential, as opposed to a knowledge that is superficial and theoretical. Again, head knowledge. The only way a person can gain this kind of knowledge, what Peter's talking about, is by receiving Jesus into their heart, at which time the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence. Now listen to me. And as such, the Spirit of God begins to fill them. They accept Christ. They're born again. The Spirit of God moves in. And the goal is to give them a deeper and more intimate and fuller knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because as Peter said, that's the key. The more we know Jesus, and we're talking about a deep... Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know him. Paul, you've been a Christian for 30 years. What are you talking about? You already know. No, no, no. I want to know him every day in a deeper, more intimate way. Because Paul knew that's where the power comes from. And when the Holy Spirit moves in, the goal is now to draw you to Jesus, fill you with the knowledge of him. And where does that come from? His word. His word. Look, any unbeliever can read the Bible, but they cannot interact with the Bible on a spiritual level. I was telling for a service, for a shower gift, somebody gave us a Bible. And I thought, oh, a Bible. It didn't have one in the house at that time. And I put it on a coffee table right there, where everyone could see it, right there. Never opened it. But you know what? This house has a Bible. Everybody walked in. Oh, I've got a Bible there. Yeah, I never read it, but I mean, it was there. So I made my, myself a, a promise. One of these days, I'm going to start, I'm going to read that book. I had never read it before. I, you know, good people should read the Bible. I was a good person, so I thought. So January came. Sure enough, I made a New Year's resolution. This is the year I'm going to read the Bible. So I opened it up, started reading. Six months later, I haven't even dragged myself to Deuteronomy yet. You talk about dry. You talk about, oh my God, sh kill me now. I just, there was nothing there that was connecting with me. I was not interested. I was just, by raw determination, I was just reading the verses, right? That June, I went out to California to visit my family. My mom was recently born again, going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So I went with her to the church, 
heard Pastor Chuck give a very powerful, spirit-filled message. Came home, my mom talked to me some more. She prayed with me to receive Jesus Christ. And when I left to come home, when I got home, I opened the Bible. This is absolutely true. All of a sudden, there was life there. There was life there. I mean, I didn't understand everything, but I was connecting. I was being fed. I was hungry. You know what happens when you get born again and the Spirit of God moves into your heart? The author of the Bible is now inside of you. You want to know the Bible? Let the author tell you what it means and how to apply it. Any unbeliever can open the Bible, but they can't interact with the Bible because they are still, it, the Bible is living and powerful, and they're still dead in trespasses and sins. Right? Let me say this as we bring it so close. Many Christians are deceived into thinking that there's some information for living the Christian life that they're somehow lacking in their relationship with Jesus, information that is not found in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying these folks are genuine Christians, but they feel they are, and they're trying to deepen their spiritual walk and so on. Uh, maybe some of them are brand-new Christians that really don't understand a lot yet. What they've been told by the devil through some character on YouTube or whatever uh, who's got some inside track on God that nobody else has got, and so they're drawn to that, right? This is a Gnostic mindset, by the way, which Paul, Peter, and the other apostles dealt with in the first century. We have inside spiritual information nobody else has. you got to come to us. This is a Gnostic, and Gnostics are still around today. Um, but there are those that believe that they need some special information, stuff that's not found in the Bible, a secret spiritual principle, or some mysterious esoteric knowledge, that if they only had access to it, it would immediately catapult them into a victorious, fruitful Christian life. They would be on fire. There would be power there. But Paul in Colossians 2.8 called that high-sounding nonsense the result of Christians having listened, a low view of Scripture. If you buy into high-sounding nonsense, it's because you have a low view of Scripture. A big part of that is not believing that the Word of God, listen, is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what Peter's talking about. God has given us through the knowledge of Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? He's the Word. The Word became flesh. It's Jesus, right? Peter tells us that a big part of people not really being able to live the life God has made available to them is because they don't believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God, that the Word of God contains everything we need for life and godliness. In other words, everything we need for, for being mature, godly, fruitful Christians. Sufficiency simply means that everything we need in the way of truth to be saved and live our Christian lives is contained in God's Word. And guys, listen, it certainly doesn't need to be supplemented with any so-called wisdom of the world. I had a professor in Bible college who uh, uh, was uh, teaching a class on counseling. And he said, if you just give the Bible when you counsel people and their problems, you're going you're to miss it. You're going to fail. We have to blend the secular and the sacred. The secular was psychology. And this is his words. And when I blended the secular and the sacred, I came up with a superior counseling methodology. I was, I was only four years in ministry at that time. That was last millennium. This is a long time ago. I asked him, can I stay after class and talk to you about this? And I said, you know, in a respectful way, I said, Professor, the Bible is pure. I'm going to make it better by adding the polluted 
water of the wells of man's wisdom? I well, didn't penalize my grade, but I felt like I had to say something, right? God's word is pure, and it's perfect, it says. It certainly doesn't need to be added to, contaminated by, the wisdom of this world, which Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. And James says in, chap in his epistle, chapter 3, this wisdom, the wisdom of the world, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Oh, great, I'm going to add that to God's word, and we're going to have a superior counseling methodology? I don't think so. Guys, when it comes to an instruction manual for victorious Christian living, the Bible is complete. It's sufficient. Uh, Psalm uh, 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord, that's a, just a way of saying the word of God, is perfect. The Hebrew word for perfect is the translation of a Hebrew word that means whole, complete, sufficient. Sufficient. It conveys the idea of something that is comprehensive so that it covers all aspects of an issue. Life and godliness. Galatians 2.20, as we close, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. How is faith strengthened? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. In Ephesians 6, 17, you have to turn to it. First of all, in Ephesians 6, it tells us that if we want victory over the devil, we need to put on the whole armor of God every day. But especially we need to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus, who's the word. The Spirit, who wrote the word. Jesus is the Word incarnate. The Spirit wrote on the pages of Scripture the words of God. All of this power, the Word of God is living and powerful, is accessed through faith. If you want to have more faith, you get into the Word more, right? I have known many Christians over the years who never read their Bibles for devotions on a daily basis or somewhat of a daily basis. They only open their Bible when they come to church, and they don't always come to church regularly. No wonder they're so defeated in their Christian life. Let me finish. I want to read Galatians 2, verse 21, but just as a springboard. All right. So after verse 20, then Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if, the, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If our works could get us to heaven, then grace would be unnecessary, and that, that would mean that the Father sent his Son to die a torturous death on the cross for nothing. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before the cross? He prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, the cross, pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Three times he prayed that prayer. And a few hours later, he was hanging on that cross, which of course says to us, there was no other way for us to be saved, for our sins to be forgiven, and to go to heaven except Jesus going to the cross. He knew that. I think he said those things to drive it home to us. Guys, if, if a law or a religion could have been given that would, that would save sinners other than Jesus going to the cross to die for us, God would have given it. God would have given it. Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, we're going to deal with that quite a bit 
next chapter. Let me just say this, because at this point, there are some people who are so locked into a law mentality. They know they're saved by grace. But somewhere along the line, they have gotten the notion or the teaching that, but now they have to do certain things and, you know, go to church and live a holy life and, as a Catholic, light the candles and pray the rosary and keep the holy days, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, but I, I've saved by grace, but I still got to do these things if God's going to really love me and bless me and use me. What's the topic? Liberty from law. It's, a, it's so important because, as we said to close last week's study, the devil can never condemn you if you're living by grace. If you're relating to God through his grace, the devil can never condemn you. He can only condemn you when he puts you under the law. And all true Christians know they're saved by grace. But not all true Christians are free of this deception. And Paul knows that living a life of works will never make you closer to God. It will only drive you farther away from God because you're always going to blow it. Look, if I'm receiving from God by grace, I don't deserve anything. Everything he gives me is a gift. Where's the condemnation? I'm not trying to do anything. I'm living up to anything. No, because I love Jesus and because he's been so gracious to me, I want to live for him. But that's not going to earn me God's favor or God's blessing and so on. So we will pick up this subject next week. I think, well, if Galatians 2 at the end contains some of the most important concepts in the New Testament for us as Christians, to live now for Jesus. He continues that thought right into chapter 3, and so we'll continue looking at this very important subject next time, God willing. Father, we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace. How tragic, Lord, and how sad it must make you that after you've provided unconditional grace, we seek to put ourselves back under the law as if doing certain things and lighting candles and going to church and living, helping in the local food pantry and uh, all these other things is going to somehow earn us your love and favor and make us better Christian. Forgive us, Lord. That is a lie of the devil. We pray that you would truly give us the grace to be set free once and for all from the lie of the law to walk in the liberty of grace. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.